Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, they do say that who you hang out with matters, that friends can make or break you. So today we're exploring friendship. In the second half of the show, we'll look at eight red flags that signal you're in a toxic relationship. We'll share how to spot them and how to deal with them before it's too late. Dr. Susan Heitler joins us for that. She's a clinical psychologist and her mantra is resolution, not conflict. But first, we're going to look at... explore the themes of love and friendship through fiction and we're going to look at how friendship is tested and how it changes with age. My guest is poet laureate and novelist Rosalind Bradbury. She's a former writer in residence and the author of Becoming George Sand, Paris Still Life, The Third Swimmer and The Lost Love Letter of Henri Fournier. Her latest book is called Without Her and she's joining us today from England uh, welcome, Rosalind Brackenberry. Hello. So um, you're just you're taking you're chilling over there. You're taking some time off after delivering your baby, your book, right? That's it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> just recovering. So how long does it normally take you to recover after you've you've uh, shipped one of these out? Well, um, you know, I'm I more or less keep writing constantly, but um, I do come over here um, for a couple of months in the summer to see my family because, and also to escape from the um, heat of southern Florida where I live most of the time. Um, so, um, yes, I've got over finishing off the book, and now I'm just excited about it coming out and um, seeing how it does, etc. Right. Well, it sounds as though you have the best of both worlds, like you said, avoiding the Miami intense heat mm. <laughs> and getting an English summer there. So I want to talk a little bit before we dive into the book without her. Um, I want to talk about friendship in general here, because the, the whole premise of the book is based around uh, love yeah. and friendship and uh, testing. I mean, some big asks are made in this story. Some big decisions and choices have to be made. Um, so how do you define friendship yourself? And as you were writing the story, did did that definition change for you? Um, well, uh, partly I wanted to write about the, uh, the school I was at. <laughs> that started off. But I think um, from the point of view of friendship, it's that if you've been friends with somebody in difficult circumstances, you know, if you meet up in a, um, in a oppressive situation, um, the friendship becomes very important because you're sort of um, you're keeping each other going. I think people in the military feel this too, you know, or anybody in in some dangerous or or hostile situation. So um, I thought these two girls um, really are there for each other, and it, her, you know, they're lying, laying down the foundations for a lifelong friendship, even if it gets difficult, which it does. Um, and I think friendship's incredibly important. It has been to me. I mean, my my friends are, are vital to me, and um, you know, there, I have many of them, which I'm lucky lucky to say. But uh, and I don't know that it's been written about all that much. Um, you know, now it is, I think. But 
somehow people are always focused on love affairs more than friendship, and I think right. friendship is important to everybody. I agree, and I also think that friendship can be just as fraught as a love affair. Yeah, <laughs> just and as probably more lo- long-lasting sometimes, too. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, it can be, you know, filled with pitfalls, too. So, I mean, uh, there's and, and many, many benefits, so uh, it's an important topic. Um, so what made you want to, uh, you wrote the story featuring two girlfriends and there's also a guy in there too. Where did you come up with the premise for the, the story and the, the three characters? Um, well, I partly wanted to write a, a, a bit about a friend of mine who died, um, but it's not really about her. It was, about, it was more about the situation of our friendship and that I missed her. Um, and I also, I'm very interested these days in the topic of memory, you know, how much we remember and um, how the past intersects with the present, really. Right, right. So let's talk about the three characters then. Uh, Claudia uh, is a filmmaker, professor. Um, she has a French lover, Alexandra, that she... I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, she has a French lover, Alexandra, and yes. they've, they've been uh, having liaisons, let's just say that, for the last 30 years. Yes. She, she lives in the U.S., he lives in France. Mm-hmm. And then the third character is, of course, uh, Claudia's uh, girlfriend, best friend, um, Hannah. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how you developed uh, Claudia, because they were childhood friends. They grew up fairly idistically, as, as many of us do. They grew up mm. in the 60s. They had dreams of grandeur. And yet they ended up with very, very different lives. Yes. And the point at which they split up from each other is, I think, a point at which a lot of young women feel like they've either got to focus on their careers or on a man or both. And they go in different directions. And so um, really, um, Claudia, who is, uh, wants to be a film director, takes off to America and with a rather flimsy promise that she's going to be involved in film. She finds it more difficult than she thinks. And Hannah, rather to her surprise, gets married to her university boyfriend, who's very safe and very faithful and very reassuring in many ways. And um, so their lives separate at that point. But I don't know if I should talk about the plot, but anyway, in the present time, as they're much older, um... Claudia has to really sort of dig out her memories of how Hannah was as a girl and as a student and as a young woman um, in order to try and find out what's happened to her, you know, what, what's going on with her in the present. Right, right. So let's delve into the plot a little since you raised it and um, how you put that together because um, there are quite a few twists and turns in there from a friendship point of view, from a decision point of view. Yes. Um, sorry, what was your question? Uh, Let's just talk about the overall story, since you mentioned plot. Yes. Um, As I was writing it, I mean, I I was sort of interested by the idea of somebody disappearing, which is what Hannah, it starts off with um, Claudia getting a phone call from Hannah's distraught husband to say that she hasn't showed up where she was supposed to be. And she's disappeared. And I have been thinking about how much more difficult it would be to disappear these days when there's so much surveillance and we all have um, cell phones, etc. 
and cameras are on us much more difficult than it used to be. But So I was intrigued by the idea of how somebody might still be able to disappear. And um, Claudia gets drawn back into Hannah's and her husband's life again because she, they think, at least the husband thinks, that she might be able, able to have a clue about what's happened because she, she's known her for such a long time, mm. which she doesn't really, but, uh, you know, that's what he hopes for. So she goes to France and um, joins in the search or at least waits to see what's happened. So she's, uh, Hannah's made a, a practice of this her whole life. She just suddenly doesn't show up or just suddenly yeah. disappears. Um, you know, but it's, it's a whole different thing when you've got a husband and children uh, waiting at home for you and you just disappear like that. So um, I think um, one of the things that came across to me, and I don't know if this, uh, if you felt this as you were writing it, but Claudia uh, in many ways to me seemed like the more grounded person and the nurturer of the relationship. And Hannah, yeah. Hannah was a lot more flighty. Yes, and then, I, I agree about that. Yeah, it's partly what we're going to talk about in the next segment because one of the things that when I was preparing for this show today, one of the things that shocked me um, was that we all think when we, if we're like, you know, if we are told uh, name six of your friends and we name our friends, um, mm. we expect that they're going to name us back. But according to studies uh, done by psychologists, probably only half of those people would name you back as a friend, which was kind of alarming. And yeah. and they said it, it kind of shocks everybody. So why do you think uh, in this case, Claudia tolerated Hannah's behavior for well, so long? It, it, she sort of, there are moments when she thinks she absolutely hates her and, and is furious with her. You know, when she's she's waiting in the, with her husband and children, she's she goes through moments of being really angry with her and remembering that, of course, this was the pattern of behavior that Aunt Hannah has always showed. So I had to go back into the past and create Hannah as somebody who's always had this selfish streak, who's always just gone for what she wants in life and um, has quite often manipulated people into getting what she wants. Um, and so I, I thought, well, I'm not going to make the perfect friendship. You know, there's going to be some um, friction here. And Claudia remembers lots of times when Hannah didn't show up, let her down, um, you know, all sorts of moments when she felt disappointed and angry with her. And then, of course, Hannah feels angry with Claudia when they're young women and Claudia just takes off to America and and leaves her in London. Yeah, Um, I've actually read um, psychological reports on that when like when one family member goes to live abroad and yes. that some of the family members left behind, especially like sisters or siblings that are very close, actually feel abandoned to some degree. Yeah, quite. Yeah. And I actually asked my sister one one year, I said, did you, when I moved to America, did you feel I'd abandoned you? Because she was alone. Uh, we'd, all, we'd all moved to America at that point. <laughs> they yeah. all went back to England eventually and I stayed, but... Um, yeah, she did. She said no, but I do. I do think she did feel a little abandoned. Maybe she was being polite. Yes, yeah. I think she's being polite. <laughs> you don't know but my had, sister. She's not. She'd tell me right. Yeah, I had. I had some friends who, when I moved to America, um, were quite angry with me. But then I also then had friends who just said, "Well, go for it. You know, yeah, go, we're with you all the way." Um, so you get a bit of both. Right. So um, I'm, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about 
um, life choices and big decisions because this was uh, another big part, a big theme through the book um, yes. that some very big decisions had to be made. And we won't give away the, the plot here, but, no, we, I but, <laughs> but we can talk in generalities. Um, yeah. Please stay with us. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. And my guest is Rosalind Brack, Brackenbury. Excuse me. Um, her new book is called Without Her. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Have fun this boating season and be safe. When you're in open water, it's not enough to be a good swimmer. River currents, ocean riptides, and cold temperatures can quickly sweep you off course and disorient you. Don't rely on swim aids such as water wings or noodles. Everyone should wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket. Make sure you know CPR and never drink and boat. Learn more about boating safety from the professionals at uscgboating.org. Brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless, dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Kimberly Friedmutter demystifies how to tap into your hidden ability to navigate life. From reducing stress and getting fit to overcoming addiction and achieving career goals. We'll share tools from her new book, Subconscious Power. Use your inner mind to create the life you've always wanted. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150KKNW. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, and I'm talking in this segment with novelist Rosalind Brackenbury. Her new book is called Without Her. It's a story of love and friendship and how those friendships are tested and change over the years. And uh, it's described as a haunting new Ferranti-esque novel. Um, that's quite a big compliment, right? It is. I bet you were pleased with that. I was. I was very pleased. Yes. So for those who don't know who Ferranti is, I, I had to Google her myself, actually, this morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's an Italian. She was an Italian novelist who um, was very, very popular in her day. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about We haven't mentioned Alexandra very much. Yes. He's, no, he's Claudia's, yeah. Claudia's French lover. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and... You write that, you know, he he's very discreet, as French men are. They don't kiss and tell. So there may be secrets there that Claudia is not aware of. There may not be, but there may be. Um, you talk about some 
uh, big life choices. But one of the things that, I mean, she seems such an independent person, and yet she's had this 30-year liaison with this French guy who she calls mm. an old-fashioned French sexist. Um, he, um, they have a very contemporary romance, in other words, but, but he's stuck in the 1940s with his vision of, yeah. <laughs> of women. I mean, he calls, he calls um, feminists lesbians. I mean, <laughs> you know, talk about being stuck backwards. <laughs> yeah, so, I know. So talk to us about him, why you developed him the way you did. Oh, right. Um, well, I had fun doing writing about him, actually, because I think, you know, he's he's wonderful in many ways, and he's in, in, not in others, as you pointed out. And um, But she sort of teases him with his, his attitudes and his, um, his en, en, endless hope, hopeful marriages with women who he doesn't get on with in the end, you know. Um, and so I, li- I like to have that, that sort of, it was a little bit complicated, you know. I think I like to present characters who are not all of a piece, that they're kind of annoying one minute and lovable the next and sometimes people people surprise you you know when you just when you're thinking um this is a really a, a kind of sexist fellow he does something really quite wonderful yeah well there's certainly that cat and mouse tension between them. Yes. <laughs> um so let's talk about life choices and what we ask of our friends and again i'm not going to give away the, the plot here but um but we often as Friends um, expect that if we ask a friend to do something uh-huh. for us, they will do it. You you have a couple of very big asks in yes. in the book. Um, talk to us about those in your own words. Um, well, without giving away the plot, I do I do know. I mean, I see that they asked a lot of each other, and um, there are moments when each of the characters thinks, "I can't do that." You know, no way, I'm not going to do that. Um, but they kind of, it, uh, it, it evolves, the whole discussion evolves um, through in the finding out how many, how committed they are to each other, in fact, when it becomes sort of life and death issues. And I, mean, I think often this is what happens. You think, oh, no, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that for you. And then you think about it some more. And you think, well, this is a, my friend or my lover. You know, this is somebody I really, really care about. And you sort of push yourself a bit to go past your prejudices. And um, I think the person who does that most in this book, actually, is um, Hannah's husband, who is not one of the main characters, really, but was a character I got increasingly fond of because he really loves her, and he's, he goes against his beliefs and his principles to do what she asks of him in the end. Right, right. And so um, let's talk about forgiveness, uh, another theme in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and how you approached this. Um, because there was, I, I felt there's tension around this ask as well. Um, and ha- t- talk to us about how you approach that as a writer. Yeah. To show that forgiveness between the two characters. Would they forgive? Would they not forgive? Yes. Can you forgive? Um, and, and there's one point where Hannah says to Claudia, well, um, will you forgive me? And she thinks it's, it's just too easy. You know, how can I? I mean, she's done something really quite outrageous um, and, and and expects to be forgiven right away. Um, but I, it's, it's also put in the context, which seemed to make sense to me, of these days now when people tend to be so vindictive towards each other. I do think it's worse than it used to be. Um, and criticism, crit- critical and negative. Mm-hmm. And in a way, forgiveness, we, we have to forgive each other because nobody's perfect. You know? Right. 
And so um, Claudia has this thought, and she thinks, well, with everything that's going on in the world at this moment, I think it's really important to forgive her, even if it hurts, even if it's difficult. And so that was a difficult moment. Yes, it was tricky to write that one. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, maybe, yeah. That's a, maybe that's a real test of friendship about how much you are willing to forgive. Yes, and it's also a test of Claudia's character because she thinks, I don't want to be the person that's stuck in this petty grievance, unable to forgive her. You know, she wants to go beyond that. She wants to be bigger than that. Right, right. So let's talk about, um, you said that you keep writing. You're pretty much writing all of the time. Um, you know, I, what's what's the routine like for you? Does And well, what, what comes first for you as well? Will it be the characters or the story or does it vary? Well, it's funny. It's um, like I, I'm always amazed by the idea that, by the thought that there's an idea one day that pops into your head one day that wasn't there the day before. You know, I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it takes it takes a long time to emerge. And um, I mean, I don't. I, I write, write a journal all the time. I check in with writing every day. But I'm, you know, I don't really have a routine unless I'm working on a particular manuscript. In which case, I work. I go to a studio, not where I live, in the mornings and write and then tend to go back there late in the afternoon and see what I've, been, what I've done. But um, it's like something going on in the back of my head all the time. It's like listening out for stories or, or, you know, waiting to get the next idea. And I find to do that, I, quite often it's good to be quite passive, just go for walks or go swimming, which I do a lot. Right. And um, just let things sort of simmer a bit. Well, there's a lot of truth in that psychologically, having giving ourselves that space and that freedom to just, you know, let our mind wander. Yeah, I really appreciate it now. I mean, if you've got children and a job, it's really hard to do, but I don't any, have, you know, have to do that anymore. <laughs> right. So you, when you started writing, did you have kids at home? Um, I had, a, when I, my first novel came out when I had a, a really small baby, yes. I mean, I was writing it when she was a small baby. Hmm. She was about one. When she came out, I've just I've just written a piece on my website about that actually because that particular novel is is going to be reissued. Somebody's just got in touch with me to say that they wanted to reprint it, and I think that was a very long time ago. Um, <laughs> right. you know, which novel? I, yes, which I, novel? Which novel was that? It, it's called A Day to Remember to Forget. Okay. But I don't know when it's coming out, but it it, it was a book published um, a very long time ago, but in um, England and in America. Mm. Yeah. So I was looking on uh, Twitter over the weekend. Big mistake. <laughs> mm -hmm. Big mistake. But, um, you know, there was much debate uh, in one section about how much responsibility uh, creative artists have, whether they're musicians or, or art, you know, painters or sculptors or, and especially writers, how much, if any, responsibility they feel to um to make a voice in that political arena. Um, you live both sides of the pond uh, yes. here and, of course, England, where they're dealing with Brexit and all the delightful yeah. stuff that's going on over there. Um, mm. So it, it's going on everywhere. D do you feel any sense of responsibility there? What, what's your view on that? Well, I do, actually. I mean, I think I've always felt that I want to make sense of the world around me, whatever it is, you know, whatever's going on. So there's often been a, a political sort of tinge to my work. Um, I think more so 
the older I got, you know, and now it seems like quite an important thing to be writing about um, without it becoming a polemic, you know, just to sort of try and, and see what's really going on. And um, uh, I mean, this particular book, without her, hasn't got much of a reference to um, current events in it, but I did set it in Europe at a time when lots of refugees are showing up on the beaches, you know, and mm -hmm. um, there is a, a sort of sense of, of unease, I think, in it. In it. Um, I don't know, it's hard for me to judge, but I, yeah, I, I, I feel some responsibility for that. Yeah. I, I have, I ran into somebody a couple of weekends ago and um, they're writing a novel and their idea is to just lock themselves away uh, for a year. That's that's some luxury. <laughs> Locking themselves away, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, to my from my point of view, I think if you're not out there, you don't have to be out there in the world, you know, protesting or, or waving flags or doing whatever. But if you're not paying attention to what's going on, I think you lose touch with um, the sense of what's going on. And um, that that ultimately informs your work along the way in some some it shapes it in some way i think yes i think so too and um actually if you don't pay attention to what's going on it's i think it's the, the work's going to suffer in some way you know you don't have to go on about it but there has to be some depth in which people think ah oh, yes this is happening in 2018 or whatever you know in which this this and this is going on and these are the things that pe difficult things that people have to deal with right right so uh, author Annie Dillard, who is much loved up here, said of your book, Without Her, I absolutely loved this book. What a great compliment. Wasn't that lovely? Yeah, it's right on the front, too. Yes, <laughs> I know. I was so thrilled. Yeah. So a yeah. final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today, Rosalind. Oh, um, well, um, I like connecting with the listeners. I'm delighted to get a chance to talk to them. I'm into readers you know, and uh, who are listeners too. Um, I hope they enjoy the book. And I think um, it's really about people taking responsibility for their own lives. In quite, and I hope that's not doesn't sound too serious and portentous. But um, and women in particular, yeah. Right. Right. Um, Lee Smith, author of uh, Dime Store, Writer's Life, said Rosalind Brackenbury knows how to grab her reader by the throat and hang on for dear life. Without her is a smart, sexy, mysterious and utterly compelling novel. Thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate well, it. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. And um, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, your website is your name. Is that is that right? Yes, yeah. rosalindbrackenbury.com. Rosalind yeah. Brackenbury. Oh, I told you I can't speak today. rosalindbrackenbury.com. All right, well, you enjoy the rest of your time in England. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Nice talking to you. I enjoyed it. You too. Thanks a lot. All right, please stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by clinical psychologist Dr. Susan Heitler, and we're going to explore friendship from a whole different point of view. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. 
or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to New Pro Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, July 21st, it's Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I can help you understand your animal friends and resolve any problems you've got going on. And we'll have open phone lines throughout the show, so plan to give me a call with your questions or about any animal-related topic on your mind. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Do you love wildlife? Then make a real difference by helping Paws care for sick and injured wild animals. Volunteers help feed and clean the animals until they are well enough to return to the wild. Sign up today and help save a wild life. No experience necessary. All training is provided. Visit paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Giving local voices a chance to shine. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Dr. Susan Heitler. She's a clinical psychologist and has authored multiple self-help books, as well as books for therapists on treatment techniques. Her most recent self-help book is called Prescriptions Without Pills for uh, Relief from Depression, Anger, Anxiety, and More. We're not talking about that book today, but I want to mention it to you because I do believe that's a book that would be of interest to most, most of our listeners. And today we're focusing on friendship and in particular, Eight Red Flags That Signal, a Toxic Friendship, why we get into those friendships, how to spot those flags, and how to get out of them. Uh, welcome, Dr. Susan Heitler. Thank you. And uh, you, you made a comment before we came live. Yes, the book's not directly related to what we're talking about, but you'll need it if you get in a toxic relationship. <laughs> exactly. It addresses the downstream impacts of staying in a relationship that's toxic. That's yeah. true whether it's a relationship with a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse. Right. It makes perfect sense because we hear every day that, you know, the importance of good relationships, uh, they're good for our health. So it makes perfect sense that if we're in a bad relationship, they're bad for our health. And Absolutely. You know, 
three things struck me when I was putting my notes together for today's show, and I, I'd like to begin with those three things. Excellent. That is the first thing. The first is how differently people define friendship, and in many cases, how loosely we use the word friend. My my parents had the philosophy. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, they'd tell me. You know, be very careful about who you call friend. Have a lot of acquaintances, but be very careful about who you call friend. In your practice, do you find that we use that word friend too loosely? Well, I definitely like your parents' advice. It's normal to have circles of friendship. That is a kind of like a target in the middle, which is those very few, very special people with whom you're open and giving and can assume reciprocity. They're open with you. They're giving toward you. It feels the whole relationship feels mutually beneficial. Right. That's the ideal that we aspire for. Generally, just like it's hard to find a spouse, it's hard to find those very close friends. So most people have just a few of those. Right. And you just mentioned reciprocity. I, I said in the first half of the show, I was reading some studies that uh, they said would most people would find kind of alarming and that if you were asked to name six friends and put their names down on a piece of paper, only half of those six friends would probably name you back as a friend of theirs. Um, and the, the, the inference was that we all pretty much think if we call someone friend, they call us friend back. Um, but that's not necessarily so. That may be an indicator of one of the best kinds of friendship. There are other times, though, that uh, I'm thinking particularly of one friend that we have. He's a very shy person. We, my husband and I spend time with him. He's also single. We like him a lot. If we rated how important or central he is to our lives, it would be positive. It wouldn't be a 10 on a scale from 0 to 10. For him, having so many fewer friends, we're probably much higher in importance to him. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And the third thought I had when I was putting my notes together, you know, I've heard so many people say that as they get older, they find it more difficult to uh, make and to meet people, to make friends and most importantly, to sustain friendships as they age. Why do you think it's harder to develop deep friendships as we get older? Or is it? Fascinating you know? question. Uh, I've been just talking about a similar issue that our friendship group, the people that we internally really care about, seem to shrink as we age. We become more discriminating. I think also friendship groups consolidate over time. If somebody feels like I, my husband's grandfather used to say, friends, I have enough friends already. And there are many people as they age that feel that way. So if someone new, for instance, comes into a community, they're just not all that outreaching. Right. On the other hand, the one place where older people seem to have a much easier time making friends is if they move into a new building, neighborhood, the area where everyone is new, it's a whole different story. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was actually talking with my, um, she's uh, my uncle's uh, 
she's an aunt. She's an aunt. And she's 90 years old. She turned 90 mm. years old. And she was actually quite depressed the day I talked with her because she said all of her friends are now gone. And, um, yeah. and she still has support and friends and family around her. But I thought, yeah, I guess, you know, live long enough, that's going to happen to everyone, right? <laughs> yes, and that's where having family as well as friends adds an insurance policy. Yes, as you age, very few of the people you treasure are still around. And if you have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you might be able to take great joy from those relationships. Right. right. And feel very supported by them, right. which is the opposite of the topic of today, which is toxic relationships. Right, right. So let's dive into these eight signs because, um, you know, my parents also used to say uh, who you hang out with matters because, um, you know, if you're not in good company, you'll be seen as part of that not so good company. Mm -hmm. And yes, it, I remember something about you'll be judged by the company you keep. That's right. That's right. It's certainly I heard that a lot from my grandmother. But um, it sounds like I ran with a wild crowd and I really didn't. I was quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, but it's certainly a concern of parents. I know that. And even with, um, I think, all of the work that I've done over the years in, in self-help and talked with, you know, hundreds of psychologists and read equally as many books, um, there are times when I've still been, I, I've still like smacked my head and thought, really? <laughs> um, you know, I've seen red flags, but I've kind of overlooked them because I try to look at the whole of a person and uh, yeah it doesn't pay to do that I've found. Well that's <laughs> one of the signs you've just given a graphic description of the kind of person who's at risk for a toxic friendship. Oh. A generous, open, giving other people the benefit of the doubt, always looking at what your part uh, was in a problem with healthy friends oh, those are the predictors of someone uh, who's a great friend, someone like you. But mm -hmm. if someone like you hooks up with a toxic person, you're at high risk for being taken advantage of and becoming the pincushion. Mm. Interesting. So um, you say one of the things is, uh, and, and I definitely experienced this with that person I'm thinking of right now, you find yourself in a competition um, you say with their other best friends. In my case, it was with careers or with travel. It's like everything that we talked about, there had to be a one-upmanship. What's going on there? Hmm. Uh, so one-up, if we look at what that means, it means either you're okay and I'm okay, but I'm more okay than you're okay. <laughs> or I'm okay, you're not okay. That second one is really toxic. The first one, no, oh, you can deal with it. It's a, that, that, that example is a very good way to differentiate between somebody who can be sometimes a little irritating. Right. They always have to be one up. And yet it's not fully toxic. Toxic people make you feel not okay. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, she's right. I shouldn't have this or shouldn't have that. Right, right. 
You say there's uh, there's also an an imbalance. Sign number two. There's an imbalance in in talk time. Uh, all for the friend, none for you, or the majority for the friend. And you know, again, this particular person I'm thinking of would talk for 45 minutes on the phone, and then maybe I'd get. Perfect. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> for 45 minutes, how are you? And then, oh, I'm sorry, gee, it's late, I have to go now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so Well, I, I want to expand on that notion of asymmetry of talk time. Another way, similar way to look at it is asymmetry of listening time. Yeah. The, the friend who uh, is glad to talk and talk, and talk, uh, if you score how much they are listening, very demoralizing, or telling, I should say. Right. That this is not somebody who's likely to be there for you with true friendship in a time when you need to rely on that person. Right. And then going back to step number one, they'll often, if you do tell them or share something with them, they'll go back and make it all about them. <laughs> yes. Um, I had it bigger, better, worse, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that reminds me of, and instead of getting the real discussion of your difficulty and what your concerns are and what can you do about it, nope, it leads to them. Right. They need to be the center. So what we're talking there is narcissism, essentially. Mm. It's all about me. Mm. And when it's not all about me, I'm very clever at bringing it back to being all about me. Right, right. N- narcissism and friendship are a bit like oil and water. They don't really integrate well. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'm going to remember that next time I run into that kind of situation. Oil and water. Uh, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest is Dr. Susan Heitler. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Have fun this boating season and be safe. When you're in open water, it's not enough to be a good swimmer. River currents, ocean riptides, and cold temperatures can quickly sweep you off course and disorient you. Don't rely on swim aids such as water wings or noodles. Everyone should wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket. Make sure you know CPR and never drink and boat. Learn more about boating safety from the professionals at uscgboating.org. Brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Kimberly Friedmutter demystifies how to tap into your hidden ability to navigate life. From reducing stress and getting fit to overcoming addiction and achieving career goals. We'll share tools from her new book, Subconscious Power. Use your inner mind to create the life you've always wanted. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable at conversationslive.net. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. 
They say who you hang out with matters, that friends can make or break us. And today, uh, in this segment, we're talking about eight red flags that signal you're in a toxic relationship. Dr. Susan Heitler is my guest. She's a clinical psychologist. And uh, we're going to talk. Okay, let's jump on to number uh, sign number three, uh, Dr. Heitler. Your best Mm -hmm. friend blurts out criticism with a self-righteous attitude. Um, it's important to be honest in a relationship, but what happens to, you know, where do we cut the line off there? Pay attention to how you feel. Friends are supposed to boy, boy be you, O-Y, right. uh, you up. If, in fact, you feel more down after you spend time with your friends, something's going on. Sometimes their negativity is expressed explicitly, like with criticism accusations, blame, for sure those people are highly toxic. Avoid them, get away from them. Then there's the subtle toxicity. That's when there's a little insinuation or something deprecatory in your tone of vo- in their tone of voice. That's also toxicity. Remember, a single drop of mercury mm-hmm. can poison a whole lake. Right. Do you want that toxicity in your life. Right, right. So uh, sign number four, um, I think this one's maybe more obvious, maybe it should be more obvious, I think, and that's who calls whom. Are you always having to chase the other person up? Are you the one always having to, you know, book events, make arrangements, check up on how they're doing, etc.? Right. It's the give-get ratio. Now, some people are more prone initially to pick up the phone and initiate a conversation. Uh, Between parents and children, sometimes you get into adult children, a routine, for instance, one is the initiator. At the same time, you don't want to initiate it to be who does all the giving in the relationship. Right. I always go back to that phrase now that Dr. Phil made so famous, we teach people how to treat us. (laughs) There's some truth. Either teaching or what happens with toxic uh, people is if we allow them to treat us badly, then the relationship continues and continues with more and more toxicity. This is true of abusive spouses. This is true of abusive relatives. It's definitely true of abusive friends. Yeah, and co-workers, co-workers and co-workers and managers. Exactly. Yeah. So the sign of, one of the signs of a healthier individual is we see this red flag, as you've been saying, and we do something about it. We either confront them or we exit very gracefully. Mm. And this one, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing this, this does, I know, cross over into a lot of love relationships, too. Your best friend tells you that you need to change. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's not me. It's all about you, buddy. <laughs> right. That's a, a sure sign. Healthy people, when there's a problem, look to understand their part and what went wrong. That's insight. And then they look, what could they do differently, reprogramming themselves? When you have one healthy person and one less healthy person, that's the risk that the relationship will continue because the healthier person is always looking at their part and trying to fix it, maybe even begins walking on eggshells, while the unhealthy person 
shows little or no insight and no ability to change. Right, right. And so sign number six, you, you just mentioned eggshells, and that is that you're walking on eggshells literally because there's nothing worse than, you know, thinking you're in a, 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 a good friendship and you've, you find yourself backpedaling on things you've said or not saying what you really want to say or exactly. tiptoeing around. And, and eggshells basically means anxiety. Your slightly low-level hum of anxiety is around all the time. In my book, Prescriptions Without Pills, I talk about what's the cure for anxiety. When we're anxious, we tend to want to look away from it. The opposite is the cure. Look exactly at what's causing that anxiety, what's triggering it. Mm. When you see that clearly, oh, this person is toxic for me. Right, right. And number seven, you find yourself riding an emotional roller coaster with your friend at the controls. That's the key thing, at the controls. <laughs> yes. So a roller coaster implies that there are both ups and downs. That's what makes toxic friendships so tricky. Often there are very good times. There may be long stretches of good times. The difficulty is the bad times. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that this one person I was thinking of earlier um, would call me. She was in a relationship, long-term relationship that was dissolving. Yeah. Uh, his choice. He was stepping away. And she would hint around things but not ever say anything. And then I'd get these phone calls that said, Vicky, call me. I'm whispering. Can you hear me? <laughs> um, I suddenly realized I'm on radio here. I can't yes, whisper. Right? Right. But she, right. w- she would leave these messages saying, Vicky, call me. Um, I need to talk with you as quickly as possible. And I, you know, get home, pick up the phone. I think, good. What the heck is going on? And, you know, this may be an hour or two later by the time I get the message and call her back. And she's like, oh, nothing. I just felt like talking. Like, uh, that's a little bizarre. It's what very bizarre. What's going on there? Um, she, she was very, very narcissistic, very narcissistic. And that's a form of manipulation. Yeah. So with toxic people, in addition to narcissism, and I do hear that it was all about her. I just wanted to talk. I had something and it was probably felt big at the moment, but it was a nothing later. In any case, people who are I, I, I all about me sometimes also mm. are emotionally overly intense Mm. Uh, clinicians sometimes use the word borderline personality disorder for people who have extremely high emotional responsivity to what may be just small events that responsivity gets them upset at a lot of things that other people wouldn't be upset by right then if on top of that they turn that upset sometimes on you their friend or are continually burdening you with their excessive emotional reactivity, that can get old, at least, and toxic also. Yeah. And you hit the nail right on the head there because that's exactly what happened. This continued. And, and you know, very appreciative of everything I was doing to help her one day and the next day. Uh, just very volatile and angry. And so I just finally said, I said, you know, enough. Would she get angry at you? Uh, She actually did one time. Yes, she got angry at me. One time is very interesting. Part of what seduces women, especially into these toxic relationships, 
is many women feel good when they can be helpful to someone. Mm. So we're helpful, we're helpful. She's upset at this person, at that person. What we don't realize is at some point that tendency to villainize others and make herself feel like a victim, it's going to turn on you. Exactly. That's yeah. when, ooh, this is really toxic. Yeah, exactly. Not and just draining, but actually personally hurtful. Yes. And we're, we're almost right. We've only got a minute left here. I do want to get sign number 18. Stress starts to settle in our body. This is the, the eighth red flag here. Uh, for me, I'd feel frustrated. I'd feel used. I'd, I'd just feel irritated. But there are actual physical signs that people experience, too. Yes, we each have our pet organ that tends to signal problem, problem, could be fatigue, could be stomach aches, could be your chest feels tight, your neck feels tight, or some people feel like, oh, I'm carrying a burden on my back. Well, you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, great information. Um, I want to let listeners know uh, about your website, um, which is prescriptionswithoutpills.com. The book is called prescriptions without pills for relief from depression, anger, anxiety, and more. Pay attention to what we talked about today. <laughs> Otherwise, you're definitely going to need that book. Um, so, um, and it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, Dr. Heitler. Information is power. So it's been a pleasure with me, Vicki, to speak with you today. I hope that the information empowers your listeners to notice when they're in a toxic relationship and also to make a decision, mm, okay, enough of that person, or at least far less of that person right. in my life. Right, have some self-respect. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, that brings us right to the end of today's show. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. If you have questions or comments or feedback on today's show, you can find me at conversationslive.net. Any information I can pass on to you, I'm happy to do so. You can also find Dr. Heitler's TEDx talk uh, on YouTube, um, and that's to do with her book, Prescriptions Without Pills. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week. Live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.